0: Welcome back to the It Takes Guts podcast. I'm Jenny Ingram, product manager at Anatomy and Physiology at Carolina
1: Biological. And I'm Candace Berkeley, also a product manager here at Carolina. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, that's right. So, Jenny, we had a really fun podcast with Dr. Meyer. And just wondering, have you been practicing your mindfulness? Of course, I have. Lots uh, of slow breaths and visualizations well just let you know i actually had to upgrade my mindfulness app to the paid version it's been a really rough month There's been a lot of use on that mindfulness <laughs> app I have to tell you. But I think we learned a lot from Dr. Meyer. We are shifting gears. Today, we are just going to focus on AMP instructional trends and methods, right? We are. But it is another
0: AAA member. This is Dr. Kirsten Brown, mm-hmm. and she is the Associate Professor and Vice Chair for Education at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Okay, let's go. Hi,
2: Dr. Brown. We're really happy to have you here today.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic career?
2: Uh, hi, it's it's really nice to join y'all. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Dr. Kirsten Brown. I'm an associate professor and the vice chair of education at George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I came to GW in 2011, which was my first academic job ever after I finished my PhD. And um, I honestly didn't, I don't really know what I thought my job was going to be like, but Through the years, I've really taken on a lot of educational leadership and a lot of teaching and really trying to make gross anatomy and and all of our courses as best as possible. So I definitely have, you know, gone from the trenches in teaching to more of kind of leadership opportunities, which has been a, a great experience for me so far.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So we know that you oversee a lot of the anatomy courses at the School of Medicine. So we have a lot of questions about the trends in teaching and student outcomes and new instructional methods. So how has anatomy teaching changed over the last couple of years?
2: Yeah, so that is a really great question. Um, And one that I I will say that I deal with a lot on a day-to-day basis. Um, I work with a lot of graduate students who are trying to get jobs. And I think it's really critical to know how much our AMP teaching has changed. And not just because of COVID, but even pre-COVID, there was a lot of change. And so when you ask this question, I'm, I'm probably going to be asking you more questions as we go. but I mean the first question I would say, is it, you know what program are you asking about? Um, what student populations are you' talking about? because they're not all the same. And so having kind of my finger, so to speak, in all these different populations, I've really seen a lot of differences. For anybody who's in medical education and, and health sciences, I think maybe to a lesser degree, I have noticed that there's just a total reduction in, in total teaching hours, both for any anatomy discipline. So embryology, histology, neuroanatomy, and gross anatomy. And that's true for la- laboratory sessions and lecture. So what we would classically call didactic sessions. And part of that, you know, is there's so much more that our doctors, our healthcare professionals need to learn that is not just related to kind of like textbook type issues. Um, so at GW, we've integrated a lot of public health, anti-racism and medicine. And so when you get into that, there has to be given some of these other disciplines. So that's the first thing I would say. And I I would imagine several listeners would probably hear that loud and clear. Uh, and that's definitely true in my job, you know, over the past 11 years is how we've kind of changed that approach. I think the other thing that people are starting to see is just kind of general trends in healthcare overall. Healthcare career jobs, and not just medical doctors, not just physician's assistants, or now physician's associates, I should say. You know, these other career options within the healthcare field are exploding. And that means we need to have competent AMP providers, and then they need to have competence in anatomy and physiology. And so I think you're also seeing kind of an explosion of, of teaching a lot of these graduate, sometimes postgraduate programs, we call them. Um, in order to prepare folks for preparing for the workforce. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of opportunities, I think, for jobs that are popping up and in these different programs where maybe it's not exactly how we trained, but it's still critical in order for kind of our overall missions in healthcare. The third thing I would kind of say is that we, at the same time, which is unfortunate, is that there's this shortage of anatomy faculty. Um, and my colleagues, Adam Wilson and William Brooks, kind of demonstrated this in a survey a couple of years ago. And really, that's more, again, this is this kind of transition in how we teach these subjects. You know, when I was first hired, I was expected to teach basically gross anatomy and, and one other discipline. And now when we're looking to fill faculty spots, as, 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 we, as we have done for the past couple of years, You know, you don't have to just be an expert in gross, you need to be an expert in all these different disciplines, um, which is completely changes the training that we need our graduate students to do, and that's especially true when you look at these medical education health sciences programs. Um, where you do have kind of these, what we refer to as integrated curricula. And so you really kind of have to be this jack of all trades almost when, when you're applying for jobs now. Um, so there's there's changes in kind of how we're teaching, there's changes in the courses we offer, and then there's a reduction in the number of hours, which all seems almost counterintuitive, but they all go hand in hand based on what we need to develop competent um, healthcare professionals. And then finally, I mean, you know, if COVID demonstrated nothing else, there's just this vast explosion in technology. Um, So, you know, all these different opportunities that we have to teach our subjects in a different way or using a different platform. And those are always very attractive from an administrative standpoint because, you know, there's a cost aspect. And so, you know, you're seeing all these different types of things that are popping up. How are
1: you feeling about what you're seeing?
2: I do want to say is like people are listening, so they don't think I'm just completely pro like all of these changes is I think most people would agree. And I would agree that if we had our preference, then we really still do like cadaveric dissection, pro section, some type of experience in the lab. I think the question is, you know, what is that lab experience going to look like moving forward? And I think COVID has absolutely forced us to kind of address some of those questions.
1: Yeah, I think that brings up a really good point and leads into my next question really well. COVID really pushed instructors to utilize technology and different instructional techniques that they hadn't used before. So how do you think that impacted or will impact anatomy instruction?
2: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) as as someone who was on the front lines of having to do, uh, you know, what we would say were essential skills. Um, you know, COVID was absolutely um, not a positive experience in some ways, and I will be honest about that. So, you know, when we first switched over, and this is in the U.S., and so I know our colleagues in Australia and in Europe got it much earlier than we did, but when we started to do lockdowns in the U.S., when you think about how you're going to teach online, there's good online teaching, there's good instructional design, there are certain things you would want to do. Um, and this is kind of where I always put on my administrator hat and my medical education hat, kind of like thinking about these things. So there are things that are in an ideal situation when you have time to plan. And then there is whatever you were told you had to come up with in like two weeks to basically produce a course. And so unfortunately for many of us, it was the latter that we kind of had to do very quickly. I was lucky to be a part of a study with Derek Carman, Stephanie Atardi, and, and Gary Farkas and a bunch of others where we actually surveyed anonymous and asked them, you know, what was your experience in this? And really, the big things that came out of it were, you know, the standard approaches for teaching, which we would think would be a laboratory, you know, format and a a lecture, they were modified. So it wasn't necessarily that things were eliminated, but the settings were changing. So instead of being in-person, it's recorded. Instead of being in-person lab, it may be online labs, which is kind of where the technology stuff comes in. And then I think to credit for everyone who kind of did this is AMP faculty were very forward-thinking and adaptive when we had to do this. It wasn't that we gave up our identities as, as anatomists and AMP and A&P educators to move this forward. It was really, we said, how can we make this work with what we have under the constraints? Now, for those of us that, you know, we were at GW, we had some of what, much more strict lockdown measures than other places in the country. And so that's always a challenge, you know, when you're in different areas and the students are like, well, why does this person get to go into lab? And we don't. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, part of that's related to the, the city and local governments, right? Right. Um, but we were completely locked down. Um, and so I think for all of us, we really wanted to get back into the lab. And eventually we were able to get back in the lab. For those who didn't have to do, you know, the lockdown immediately, there was a lot of good information in that study about how they had to incorporate more personal protective equipment, you know, social distancing guidelines, small groups. And when you start to think about small groups, you have to go from like 200 something right to a group of 50 and what you do is going to be very different. Mm-hmm. You can't do the same thing. So when you start to go through all these the design the design is completely different the approach is completely different and I think we were all thrown this like curveball immediately. Now <laughs> over time it got better and I will say that you know for those of us who had more time to kind of think and plan, it did get better and we started to adapt a little bit differently. I had this PhD course. In order to do that quick conversion, what we ended up doing was, you know, we were like, well, we'll give lectures live, like on Zoom. And technology is great, but technology was also equally horrible. Um, I think a lot of people thought that it was going to be this like, oh, I'm just going to lecture and it'll be fine. It was, uh, I would describe, I would say soul sucking is the best possible description for, you know, my experience (laughs) with that. Um, (laughs) I know you guys are laughing, but it was so true. (sighs) Part of it is because you're, if it's not a conversation, if it's you talking to a screen of like boxes, that's what a lot of us thrive on when we're in an in-person kind of lecture environment. And I want to say that the students for all of our courses were amazingly supportive. But there were so many times that I would just finish teaching and cry because my Wi-Fi wasn't working, because something else wasn't working. And it's like you try so many things and none of it works. And you just feel like this is the worst. You could not get it right. And so, you know, based on kind of that experience and with a little bit more time to kind of develop things, you know, what we started to do is we actually started to, think okay well this was not the best option we had (laughs) this was kind of like a c effort a for effort but c for execution just based on kind of what we did so we went to the drawing board and you know we're really lucky i want to say at gw that we have an instructional designer uh tracy blanchard and so in planning for that fall semester for us where spring was kind of shut down we then started to say okay how can we actually do this well what is good online teaching work look like And so then we kind of changed the script and said, okay, well, we're not giving live online lectures. We're going to do a lot of recordings. We're going to make them like short. We're going to add questions. And, you know, we know this from data. We know that that's an effective way to teach online. We also know from our wonderful colleagues in Australia and New Zealand who wrote about their experiences, you know, months before we had to enact them. I think when you think about the technology, there's good parts about it and there were bad parts about it. I think hopefully coming out of COVID and crossing my fingers here is trying to think what we learned there that we can actually take forward. Mm-hmm. I don't think everything was bad. I think the question is what we would like to take forward. And that's a separate conversation because there was a lot of good. And I think especially this on the student perspective, I think they definitely liked the flexibility in the schedule. They liked a lot of these things. So the question is, how can we kind of meet them in the middle? So you touched
0: a little bit on the effectiveness of some of the changes that you guys made, shortening some of the lectures, asking questions, getting a little bit more engagement from students. Yeah. So based on what you said there, could you elaborate a little bit more about the effectiveness of some of the things that you were using and maybe even give us some examples of the things that you were using as far as what you did to change the lectures, any sort of simulations that you may have used or any sort of demonstrations you may have used during your remote time?
2: Right, so uh, again, another great question. The first question I'm then gonna pose to the audience is what do we mean by effectiveness? Because that's (laughs) such a loaded word in teaching. Do we mean knowledge acquisition? Do we mean knowledge retention? Do we mean skills development? I mean, all of these are drastically different and you assess them in different ways. So in in effectiveness, I'm going to put that out there. And then as we kind of discuss, I'm going to, you know, point out some of the ways. I think the first thing that everyone thinks about effectiveness is did our students learn? I mean, yes, they did. They did well. Was the situation ideal? Probably not. I can tell you that we've looked at some of our data from GW. Overall, the scores look good. They actually performed very well in their standardized Examinations that they take their step one, which they take after, you know, kind of their first two years in medical school. They did well on that, but there was still a perception that they missed out on a significant portion. And what came up over and over again was anatomy lab. Like we didn't get anatomy lab. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, part of that, nobody's fault because it's kind of hard. You can't really do these small groups over and over again and I will say with a limited faculty and limited time where we're also not developing all this online stuff at the same time so it was what it was so they learned and I think it's a fair assessment that they do feel like they miss out on stuff because we know that these lab experiences whatever they are they do impart these other skills there's ethical considerations um, there's the humanities subset There's skills practice which for my PhD students is pretty critical And so, you know, as an example of what we did, we had made a commitment among the faculty and the fact that we can get, we got all of our wonderful anatomy faculty to agree that we were not going to do many live sessions right live in the context of we're using zoom. Mm -hmm. So we recorded all of our basic content kind of how I said in these little mini modules, and then we basically structured very specific review sessions throughout the week. And so we would come back and do cases and questions, which we hadn't done in a previous year. And so that was something we learned worked really well. And that's something we actually carried forward. So we're still actually not doing live sessions for our medical or our physician's assistant students because they said over and over again, I really like that I can pause and think instead of coming in, right? And again, we had no clue that that was going to happen, and um, but we did that. Specifically, we were able to offer some pro section based labs. So we had small groups come in for the sole reason that we wanted to reinforce the content. Um, we didn't do any assessments in the lab because it's not fair, because this was a remote situation. There was like, you can't make them move to DC. So, so we had to make a lot of these decisions, not only for the med, but also for our graduate programs pretty early on. If we're going to have them a commitment, and then if they come, we, there's got to be something we offer. But the ones who came, then we were able to offer some labs and just seeing it was enough, I think, for them, it wasn't what ideally they wanted, but it was enough to supplement what was going on. It was a small subset of those students, because not everybody wanted to do this in person, we called it a hybrid approach as opposed to an entirely remote approach. I would not recommend to anybody that is listening to do these two different curricula at the same time. For us, it was an overhaul, but for some of our colleagues that had to do these simulation, so physical diagnosis sessions, they had to offer both an in-person and a remote option. And that was a nightmare in terms of planning, basically. I, I think we did a good job. I am confident that our students learned. I absolutely think they missed out on a critical part of it. I think there's still things that you can take away from that experience and use moving forward and to tailor and make it better. I wouldn't, I don't, and I don't honestly think anybody is thinking, you know, at the end of like COVID that we did the best, we were just amazing. And it was so great. And I think, especially for technology, if it worked, then maybe you can use it. And if it didn't work, then what do you need to use instead? Or or maybe just think something completely different. Mm -hmm. Right based on my personal
0: experiences, I'm teaching a, an a class online right now, and it's mm-hmm. always been online. So it's not something that the students feel like they're missing out on, like a, an in-person component. But did you find that your students, because yours would have been at a higher level than mine, as far as where they were in their schooling, these are community college students who are trying to get into nursing programs and things like that. Yeah. Did you find that their use of technology was that they were able to self-serve, that they were able to understand what they were doing, to find what they were supposed to do very easily, or was there a learning curve there too?
2: Yeah, so I, I absolutely think that there was a learning curve on both sides. I think our students were by far more proficient than the faculty were. I mean, you know, (laughs) I'm going to laugh and and use myself an example. I mean, we were in the lab the other day and like we had an iPad and we were trying to use the iPad. And I was like, I don't even know how to get on the Wi-Fi on this thing because also I don't have Apple products. So I'm like, I don't even know where the Wi-Fi is here. So that was absolutely came out in our literature that's come out in other papers where the students are better at the technology than we were. And I will say as a faculty, the the most stressful part of administering these courses and working is that you're feeling like you're letting the students down and you don't know how to fix it, right? Like when the technology fails, you don't know what to do. But I think for those people who have had an experience with that they're able to navigate that a little bit more, you saw kind of like the range and how people approach technology. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Jenny, what about you? Yeah, so I have had the
0: privilege of being a distance learning student in addition to a distance learning instructor, so I've been able to see kind of both sides, but I have noticed that there is quite a learning curve, at least for the students that I've worked with, as far as like navigating the platforms Mm -hmm. and finding what they're supposed to be doing and how to submit assignments, and I've even seen it as a student from the instructors that I've had saying things like make sure that you check that your assignment is submitted in the correct format because if I can't find it and can't read it, you're getting a zero. Like that kind of, and this is at the graduate level.
2: I, you know, I got a master's in education at, at GW and a lot of our courses were either hybrid or distance learning. And part of the issue though, and we encountered kind of a similar thing here is when you wanna use all these platforms, a lot of these platforms are great, but they're literally to be an all-in-one. So mm-hmm. you assign quizzes, you can grade stuff, you do everything in the same platform. We also have learning management systems like Blackboard or Canvas that are supposed to do all of that. And like, these are two totally separate platforms. And when you're used to using one and then you have to switch over to the other, that's definitely a challenge. It is. Like you said, there's a learning curve on both sides. Definitely. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: The It Takes Guts Anatomy and Physiology Podcast is brought to you by Carolina Biological and the American Association for Anatomy. AAA connects professionals who work in anatomy and advances the understanding of its foundational role in science. We're connecting science, connecting knowledge, and connecting you. Learn more about AAA at anatomy.org or follow AAA on Twitter at anatomy.org.
1: gears a little bit, I'd like to talk about curricular integration. So Dr. Brown, I know you've been involved in some research studies about this. So if you can talk about what integration is and its impact on medical programs and anatomy in general.
2: Yeah, I will say that is such a loaded word. Whenever you hear integrated, it's like sirens, like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do next? And and as you kind of said, it's really more in medical education, especially health sciences, probably to a lesser degree. You know, when we say integrated, and I think this is kind of my involvement of being within these different curricula. I mean, what do you actually mean? Is the curriculum integrated, which means are you basically covering, say, anatomy, physiology with pathology within kind of the same week, for example, are we all kind of talking about general topics, but each one from our expert pool of knowledge, essentially, are the sessions that you teach actually integrated? Does that mean that you have multiple experts that are involved in designing the content there? You're conveying the information, um, you're reinforcing the material, and, and that's important. I will say, you know, as an aside, the way we cover things, there's nuances in everything. And so the nuances that we focus on in anatomy are like, oh, maybe they're not important for something else, or it's like a very subtle change to us that is, or a very subtle difference. That's not a big deal because we're very good, you know, with the grays that they're, you know, not everything in medicine is black and white mm-hmm. students, not so much. They don't like that there's multiple different values for the same thing, or that we're telling them different things. So when you do integrated sessions, some, some of that's improved. And the final thing is, like, are your exams integrated? I mean, does that mean you literally got everybody in a room and you wrote the questions together so that you're not writing when the students take the exam, they're not like, oh, that's a Dr. Brown question. That's absolutely an anatomy question. (laughs) It's (laughs) basically... They can tell. I mean, they know who writes the questions, right? I mean, if they're asking, if it's a radiology and it's asking them to identify something, it's, you know, if I taught it, it's me, right? And this is like, these progressively, I think in my head, get higher and higher in terms of how you think. It's easy to basically, and it's not easy, but shuffling the deck chairs and the content is one thing. And then getting people to talk and be like, hey, we need to cover the same content. And that's another. And then getting us all to write exam questions is like almost a pinnacle area right there. Um, the exam integrated content really, I think comes from you know this idea that the students take these licensing exams. So the step one is, is, the, is the first one they take. And to write those questions, they get, again, a bunch of experts in a room. And it probably takes them an hour, or sorry, eight hours to write one question. Because they're like, it needs to, I know, everyone's <laughs> like, what? It, it needs to be specific. There can't be any possible other options. So, I mean, and there are, there are whole workshops where you can go to, to learn the right questions. It is an art form. So as the kind of aside for all this integrated stuff, you can imagine that, and I'm, I'm putting on some of my administrator hat at this point, for those of us on the front lines in any of these programs, what you're moving away from is like the standalone AMP p course, a standalone anatomy course. And I will say, you know, that this is kind of a general trend you're seeing in, in med ed. There are some places that still have, you know, maybe anatomy and AMP or anatomy that it's kind of heavily front loaded because it is so foundational as you kind of move through, but a lot of them have kind of integrated um, all of this. And so <laughs> when you, when, why I said it's loaded is you really have to kind of like, think about how are you navigating a lot of personalities? Let's be honest, a lot of power dynamics and you're fighting for time. And it's not always, you know, maybe it's not anatomy that needs and people will probably flame me for this, but maybe we don't need that time. Maybe we can use this time for something else. And again, my kind of perception of all this has definitely evolved over like the past 10, 11 years, because I've been in this environment where my role as a PhD anatomist is very different than my role as this medical educator, if that makes sense.
1: It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I had likened this like a couple of years ago, I gave a talk at Georgetown on this integration. And I said, the analogy I used was Game of Thrones (laughs) because that was when it was really big. It's much less morbid than that. But I think the concept of like, you're all basically trying to compete for the throne and the throne is this magical time that we all need. And then there's a lot of bargaining that happens and there's a lot of conversations that you have to have in order to figure out how this works. I think for students, for our, our, our doctoral students, people that are interested in getting jobs, a specific, and again, specific to the medical education kind of field, this is kind of most of what you're going to be seeing out there, right? I mean, this is kind of standard. If you're at like a standalone AMP course at a community college, if you're a health I mean there's many different ones but you should not be shocked if you come and see a job application there's no anatomy course there's a discipline and then we all kind of like teach randomly basically not randomly because there is an order but it seems random compared to like a typical undergrad schedule like a Tuesday Thursday breakdown essentially
1: Mm -hmm. so can you share what that integrated curriculum looks like at GW for you
2: Yeah, Um, my Google calendar is insane, like every single day. So, and I will say, at least at GW, and this is probably true of other places, the order is going to change for what you teach, but we teach content based on what the major pathophysiology of the disease blocks are. So, in August, which is my course, we started musculoskeletal and rheumatology. So, we do peripheral nervous system, neurology, room, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, That is very heavy in anatomy. So, we were doing labs four days a week. We were still in small groups because we had picked this. Keep in mind, we didn't know what the fall was going to look like when we planned this in the spring. So that's like the other thing. You're never really sure what's going to happen. But we, you know, we're we're in lab like eight hours a week, just in lab, not in terms of everything else that we do. And that went on probably up until October with a week or two break in between. So we were doing a lot of labs, Um, with the labs being focused on really applying some of the clinical content we were covering. In the spring, we have labs that are spread out over a 13-week course, and we only have four or five. So that's a completely different setup. And as I said, I teach all kinds of other things. So we teach these PhD-level courses. We teach graduate. We teach undergraduates. Those are all superimposed on this other schedule. So there's no consistency in my schedule. I can't tell you every Tuesday and Thursday in the fall, I'm going to be doing this. And we used to have that. We used to have, when our standalone course was there, it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday was lab. And then you would have kind of the lecture in the morning. Mm-hmm. So these 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 schedules, and that's a big part of my job, is trying to figure out how we can get faculty into these different courses, how they can teach, because we're also teaching like first and second years at the same time. So you're superimposing imposing multiple schedules on top of each other you know it is by far the easiest thing to do is to forget where you were supposed to be because you're like I don't know where I'm supposed to be today like am I supposed to be in lab is today a lab day I have no idea anymore so you know and again that's that's specific to GW you know for our schedule I think for us our biggest thing for student and faculty consistency is we want to make sure that when you see those days like i know monday in the fall i'm probably going to have a lab in the afternoon because mm-hmm. um, you know that helps us plan a little bit better does that always work no it, it doesn't so because again coming back to this integrated concept my time is not my time my time is also woven into other time mm-hmm. essentially there are other people that have other needs. And so a lot of what we kind of go through in terms of, you know, the weeks is not determined necessarily by Gross Lab. I will say that we do have, you know, quite a bit of sway because we have so many numbers we can have in there, but there's other things that go on in there and flow of content, faculty, et cetera.
1: Mm-hmm. Has the instructor buy-in been positive?
2: <laughs> the minute you started asking that question, my face was like, whoop. I um, so, you know... When we first started, I think there yeah, there's a way to do this and, well, and there's a way to not do it well. I think a lot of times buy-in doesn't happen if it's top down, which is how any of this stuff happens, right? And this was, to be clear, none of this was going to be a surprise. We kind of knew we were doing this. Our timeline for implementing this several year ago, years ago was very shortened, which we were not expecting. Um, was there complete buy-in? No, I don't think everybody completely bought into it. I, I love that question, though, and I, you know, I hope you know, some younger junior faculty, but also trainees are listening, because the best recommendation I can give you is to buy into something. It created a lot of opportunities for me in terms of developing my own role, my own kind of established nature at GW. So people know me because I was involved from the ground up and, and, and basically setting the anatomy curriculum that we had, because there were others who didn't want anything to do with it. And what's going to happen is if you're just like, I'm going to stick my head in the sand and ignore that this happened, it's going to happen without you. Mm -hmm. And so if you care about something, if you care about a lab, if you care about your sessions, then you got to be involved. You're not always going to get what you want. So I think you also have to understand that there's going to be compromise, but you need to be involved. Otherwise the ship is going to leave the station and you're going to be sitting there at the tracks, just watching it go away. And so that's one of the things I I learned very quickly was that if you wanted to be involved and you wanted to see change or see something kept, then you need to be in the process. Mm -hmm.
0: I can imagine that it would be really hard to go from more of a traditional everything in isolation type of education situation to going to more of an integrated approach. Although I imagine that the more holistic approach where everything is related is probably better for students as far as their retention and their ability to understand the
2: entire body, the entire concept, and then take that into the field. Right. So I think that's one of the arguments for why you would do kind of this, this integrated format. And that's kind of, you know, looking at the paper I was a part of where you looked at kind of traditional versus like integrated curriculum at the end of the day, our students are going to learn. So, I mean, that's like the first step. I think when you get to the issue of retention, when you get to this issue of basically grounding it in some type of clinical expertise for these populations, that is critical. And it was very challenging because the other thing is, and I, I, it's like, I feel like I'm having flashbacks here and I haven't thought about you know this whole process as we've talked about it in years, keep in mind. But when we did the integrated curriculum, the first year we were doing integrated for first years. And the the second year students were still in our legacy curriculum. So you still had these standalone courses. Um, Thankfully, anatomy was not involved in that. So we were not dual teaching, but my my colleagues in farm and fizz and path were absolutely doing dual teaching at the same time in in pretty intensive courses. So, you know, it, it is a challenge because there's honestly, there's so many different ways that you can organize things. And everyone has their own opinion about, oh, I would do this first, or I would do this first, or why are we doing this last, you know? what that means for anatomy is we kind of have to think about what that means for the lab. All right. So that's like the challenge for us. So as an example, we do cardiopulmonary and renal systems integrated kind of in this 13 week block in, in the spring, but when we dissect renal, we actually have to do the GI system first and we do GI after. Hmm. So we can't actually dissect renal. So this was a case of where it, it didn't matter what anatomy wanted because the way we dissect the body is not necessarily how do we present the content. There mm-hmm. are some things that we can do, but it's not, again, that's one of those cases of you're not always going to win for like, this is the way it has to be done. Now, some things we, we have managed to kind of like win, quote unquote, but over time you kind of tweak everything as you go and try to figure out not what's best for anatomy, but what's best for the students as you kind of brought mm-hmm. up this kind of like helping them put all these pieces together you know, the pathophysiology, the anatomy, the imaging. So they're not thinking about just anatomy when they look at something, they're thinking about everything together.
0: That kind of holistic approach.
2: Yeah. I think that's yeah. probably a lot more helpful because when you meet a
0: patient, you're not meeting just their digestive system. You're <laughs> meeting the whole patient.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, there are a couple of examples, you know, I can think of when we teach, when we're like teaching cardiac anatomy and we talk about like the recurrent laryngeal is near the aorta. And I always make the point, you know, you may see a patient that has aortic distension or something that's actually compressing that nerve and they're not going to complain about a chest issue. They complain about something in the neck. They complain of issues associated with speaking with a breathy voice, for example. I don't think that always lands because again, like anatomy, the reason things happen in the body is because things are next to each other, mm-hmm. but they don't know that foundational stuff. Cause we don't actually talk about that content specifically until like a year later. So it, it, it and just because you're doing that holistic approach doesn't mean you're always going to close those gaps. And that's something we always struggle with is like, how much do we need to tell them about this content before they have it later? Because, you know, when you're a practicing healthcare professional, you have everything in hand but you're kind of building that knowledge base as you go so that's always going to be a challenge
0: yeah i think that's a challenge at
2: at every level of teaching in every subject
0: that there is is the how much do you give them before you can move to the next thing that's not
2: overwhelming because they're going to
0: learn it later, I think that yeah, even second grade math. I think they are teachers that are struggling. Yeah. With that concept. and I'll
2: say like for our, our PA course, like it's even it's a more condensed, it's a very condensed course to be honest. And we know again because we have a good relationship with the PA faculty and, and my um, colleague uh, Dr. Nicole Devall in our department. You know, she's had multiple conversations with them, like what do they get later that we don't have to cover? Yeah, and they're getting this clinical content a little bit later, so it's like okay, Kirsten, you don't need to go in detail in detail about strokes or something else because they're literally going to have it in like a month but you gotta have again that comes back not just the integrated curriculum but the buying in you gotta have these conversations and figure out kind of what's going on and I think if you care as an educator if 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 their success their future endeavors whatever it is matters and I think most of us are probably going to try to figure out how to get to that point Mm
0: -hmm. yeah definitely yeah I
2: think student success
0: is a a huge motivator for any good instructor (laughs)
1: yeah absolutely Talking about integration and different papers that you've been a part of, you did a paper called Using Ultrasound to Teach Living Anatomy to Non-Medical Graduate Students. Can you tell us about that research and outcomes
2: yeah. So that's, a, again, a great segue for this kind of like integration technology um, talk. So, you know, kind of a background for this paper. You know, there's a lot of people that look at ultrasound in, in medicine, right? And they tend to associate it with OBGYN as like the classic example, but it's being used musculoskeletal, it's being used in, in ER, obviously. And so there's been kind of an expansion of it in training programs and in, in residency and in the other health sciences programs. So Several years ago, when I first got to GW as part of this project where the question was, this is my colleague, Dr. Jurgers, the question was, can we train anatomists to use ultrasound to teach anatomy? So the goal was not to make us diagnosing anything, thank goodness, because that would have been like a disaster, <laughs> like you don't want us to <laughs> diagnose anything, but the goal is could it, could we work? Because, you know, kind of this, the same issue we run into is we don't have enough faculty, we need a lot of faculty to run these sessions, and luckily for us, we had all these ultrasound stations, and so we have amazing emergency medicine colleagues who actually trained us just kind of in this basic ultrasound technique to look at basic anatomy and it ended up being a lot of fun. And so we started a graduate program a couple of years ago. And so in the anatomy course or parallel to that course, we are like, well, maybe you know, why don't we use ultrasound in that course too? Like that seems cool. And also we had way fewer students. So instead of like 185, we had, I want to say like 25. So we said, you know, let's see if we can use it to teach graduate students. And yeah, you can actually teach anatomy with ultrasound. I, you know, I think that's been proven by many other people. Um, Danielle Royer at, at Colorado has also worked on some of this. I think the cool thing about it was, it, you know, in terms of when we think about technology, this was a nice supplement, which is one of my favorite words. So you're supplementing kind of like our basic instruction, our basic kind of standard instruction, just so people are aware, was still cadaveric kind of dissection, but our supplementation was ultrasound. And that's also true within some of the medical courses we run as well. And so it was a supplement, but it was structured well so that it was there was a point to it. Um, so they're learning the anatomy, they're reinforcing it, they're, and they're looking at it in a different way because on the ultrasound, it looks very different, but it's also live. So looking at a heart beating, besides being super cool, there's a lot of information you can gain from the physiological perspective doing that. That's probably got, I mean, that's the all factor in addition to looking in the lab, right? Right. So they really pair well together. And I think overall, and again, this is where you start to talk about what do you mean by effectiveness? The students learned definitely. and, And there was satisfaction there. So students did like it. We have since, unfortunately, discontinued that because we lost one of the trainees that was kind of running it, but I hope to kind of start it back up at at some point in the future. But I think that's an example, again, curricular hat, going to put that on back again here. When you're trying to plan these things, you need to have the time and we had a lot more time here to do it and you need to have the resources. And so we could do it. We had the resources and we had the training. So we decided to jump in with it. That's not always going to be the case in everything that we do for kind of supplemental technology aids and things like that. That's really neat.
1: Yeah, I read the paper and I thought it was really cool as a supplement because the cadaver labs are obviously quintessential to gross anatomy labs. And then I read about this and I thought,
2: how you actually are learning using a living body. Again, I think that's where the curricular hat coming back on. And when I think about these things, there's a difference between supplementation. And actually there was a separate article we wrote and we were looking at the impact of computer enhanced learning or assisted learning. On basically anatomy and and really, when you look at most of these studies, this is a meta analysis. Everything is equivocal for knowledge retention. I mean, there's very few differences. I think the point for people to consider is: it are, is this a supplementation? So is this something you're doing in addition to something? Right. Um, you may have to remove some time from the lab, so that's something you're going to have to get buy-in for. That's different from replacement, which was what a lot of us did during COVID. And I don't think maybe some people want to completely replace lab. I am not that person. I definitely want to have lab in, in some kind of format. I think our definition of lab in my head continues to evolve, knowing that we have all these other things. And so, you know, when you think about all technology integration, all the, all these different concepts, I think it really comes down to like, what is your goal? What can you do within the confines of your curriculum? I may have much more control than say a community college AMP course, finances, all of those things are going to kind of come into that, but you kind of got to develop a plan for what you want.
0: So with ultrasound, obviously, and then cadaver dissections, you are seeing people's guts, if you will.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so why do you think it takes guts to teach a So once again, I'm going to put that administrator hat on. And I think hopefully if people coming out of the podcast have learned anything, I think it takes guts based on my experience, because you can imagine that these are sometimes very difficult conversations to have how to move a curricular forward. And sometimes that's because of external factors like like accrediting bodies, sometimes it's because of COVID, how to move them forward, what you need to do to move them forward, what resources you need, faculty, time, finances, all of that. And I think at the end of the day, what is gonna be best for you, don't forget that we're a part of this equation and then also for your faculty. That's really why it takes guts because when you start to move into these positions, You got to start to advocate and you got to get buy-in and you got to be a part of the process.
0: Very nice.
1: Yeah. That's
0: a good perspective that it requires the guts and the bravery and things like that to be able to get the best outcome for your students and, and do the right thing. Even if it's a little more difficult to stand up and advocate, that's awesome. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's much easier to sit on the sidelines, much (laughs) harder to like put your voice out there and it takes courage and guts. Unintended intended to kind of develop those competencies as a leader in, in education. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I agree. Well, I think that concludes our questions for you today. Do you have anything else that you want to share with us?
2: I don't think so. This was super fun just to kind of talk about experiences. And I know, I think this is very different from the last podcast y'all did in terms of focus. So, um, you know, I hope everybody gets kind of something out from it. And if anybody has any questions for me, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Curdy Brown. Um, Curdy is my nickname, so everyone calls me Curdy, but I'm happy to talk to anybody and you can also email me.
1: All right. Perfect. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today and we appreciate all the information.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Thank you.
0: For almost 100 years, Carolina has provided world-class support for science education, including anatomy and physiology, from preserved specimens to anatomical models. Carolina is there for the instructors who have the guts to teach AMP. For more information, visit carolina.com slash anatomy. Thank you for joining us today on the It Takes Guts podcast. Come back next time.